Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In March 2020, when countries around the world started imposing COVID-19 lockdowns, Kashmir was just emerging from a lockdown of its own. Several months prior, in August 2019, the government of India revoked the special status that Kashmir has enjoyed since the partition of India in 1947. This sparked mass protests, violence, and a heavy-handed government response, including curfews and an internet shutdown. But just as restrictions were slowly being lifted in the early part of 2020, COVID emerged and the Indian government opted to invoke COVID to impose new restrictions on the people of Kashmir. This included new citizenship laws and restrictions on press freedom. My guest today, Adnan Bhatt, is a journalist in Kashmir who has documented how COVID-19 has served as a pretext to advance policies that abrogate the rights of people in Kashmir. His article on this topic was published as part of the Stanley Center's Red Flags or Resilience series that uses journalism to explore the connections between the coronavirus pandemic and the factors for risk and resilience to mass violence and atrocities around the world. This episode is produced in partnership with the Stanley Center. To view Adnan Bhatt's article and other stories in this series, please visit resilience.stanleycenter.org. And now here is my conversation with journalist Adnan Bhatt. After the partition of British India, this Kashmir was one of the princely states which had not decided if it wanted to join either of the two newly created countries, India or Pakistan. So while that was happening, there was a war that broke out between India and Pakistan and over the territory, over this Himalayan territory, which sits at the top, like on the top of India, and which followed by the king, who was the ruler at the time of Jammu and Kashmir, the princely state, he acceded to India and Jawaharlal Nehru was the prime minister of India at that time. And while acceding to India, they were given, granted certain privileges. India decided that Jammu and Kashmir will have its own legislative assembly. It will have, it will have its own laws. But obviously the defense, the communication and the currency will belong to the Indian Union. This was at the time of just after the partition. But as the years passed on, India slowly decided to erode some of these privileges. The Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which granted Kashmir semi-autonomous status, was slowly hollowed out like Prime Minister. At that time, Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir used to have a Prime Minister. And Sheikh Mohammed Abdullah, who was the tallest leader of Jammu and Kashmir at that point, had won the election and he was the Prime Minister. But just after a few years in 1952, he was arrested and put in jail. Similarly, a new government was kind of created by the Indian state, which followed by these, again, these following out of the Article 370. Slowly and steadily over the years, a lot of these privileges that were granted to this princely state were taken away. And what happened in 2019 was this was the final nail in the coffin. 
the Indian government decided to completely struck down the 370 article, which granted Kashmir special status. But what's interesting here is, as I mentioned, that most of it had already been followed out. But there was this one in, important article, Article 35A, which granted domiciles, the natives, the exclusive rights over property and jobs in Jammu and Kashmir. So in other words, residents, those who for, you know, generations have called Jammu and Kashmir home, they had exclusive rights over land ownership. But in August 2019, when the Modi government revoked this special status, that was done away with. Yeah, that was done away with. And it is not just Jammu and Kashmir which was granted that special privilege. Himachal Pradesh, another Indian North, North Indian state, has similar special privileges. But the Modi government specifically targeted Jammu and Kashmir. It kind of created this impression among the Indian population that this is a Muslim state and why it should be granted this special privilege. And it kind of built up support for this decision and eventually in August it struck down 370, which was again forcefully done without any consultation with the people, the population of Jammu and Kashmir, or even like kind of not just taking them into consideration, they were not even given the space or even place to protest or dissent because they, which what followed was a mass arrest. Well, let's get into that because this sets up the situation going into March 2020 when COVID hits very, I think, helpfully. So you had, you know, this Hindu nationalist government under Narendra Modi basically formally revoked the special status of Jammu and Kashmir. And the response on the ground was protest and also a rather heavy-handed state response against that protest. Can you sort of describe what happened following this revocation in August 2019? Before the revocation, there were already rumors because a lot of troops had been called into Kashmir additionally because there were already somewhere between half a million to 700,000 Indian troops stationed in this region. Just before August, this August decision, more troops were called into Kashmir and kind of it already had kind of given the sense to people that something was going on. And the day this was done, a day earlier, there was a, in the middle of the night, a complete curfew was imposed across the region. And the government had already started detaining people who they believed might come out to protest or who they felt would kind of get the masses together to rally against this decision. All of those people were arrested. In fact, people who belong to the political parties who have been pro-India, even they were arrested. Three former chief ministers were arrested. They had gone to the governor a couple of days earlier trying to push what was called Gupkar Declaration, kind of pushing through and trying to voice their opposition to such a decision. But none of that was taken into consideration. And on the midnight, internet, phones, everything was shut down. And for the next two to three months, that continued without any change. Following that, it was not just the arrest. The fact that people were not even allowed to come out of their homes made it impossible for them to even kind of go out and protest. And in places like Sora, which is a small suburb on the fringes of the city, there were protests, but they were also dealt with with a ruthless force. There were injuries inside that neighborhood. People, young people were arrested and taken to custody and they were then moved to jails outside of Kashmir. Some of them were kept in Uttar Pradesh, which some of them were kept in Rajasthan, some of them were kept in Gujarat. And these arrests continued over the 
next few months people who the government felt could or would come out to protest were being arrested and were being thrown into jails the families did not know where they were they were not allowed to meet them and while this was happening there was already a communication gap which kind of multiplied the barriers of protest because it was already impossible for people to go out and physically protest but now because of the communication gap they wouldn't be even able to raise their voices or their opinions on internet on social media as has been in the past yeah i mean there was this internet shutdown and and slowdown correct so initially there was a complete shutdown and then 7 8 months later the communication lines were opened up first they opened up the telephone lines then they opened up the broadband lines and eventually i guess after a year internet mobile internet was restored but at a limited speed so the indian government had already prepared for this they had done their homework just before the application they had complete plan in place as it came across that they knew how to deal with the situation they did not want any kind of criticism for this move from kashmir which would have kind of raised questions in the international community so india was well prepared to deal with all kind of issues that might have come up due to the application so this was largely the context in which covid came to India and around the world, COVID began to spread. And as you write in your piece, you know, it was around March 2020 when, you know, some of these restrictions on on internet started to slowly get lifted. Things started to become a little freer in Kashmir. But then COVID came and the government used that as a pretext to impose new restrictions on life in Kashmir and Jammu. Can you explain sort of what was that initial government response to COVID in Kashmir? What did it look like? So as you just said, Kashmir was just emerging from this previous lockdown which had been imposed just after the application. In fact, just before the application. And just when the COVID stuck, India announced a lockdown, a countrywide lockdown. But the lockdown in Kashmir was a different lockdown than a lockdown say in Delhi. a city like delhi or a city like bangalore because here it was a more militaristic approach to the lockdown and in that initial phase what also followed was this diktat from the government which basically banned funerals of militants of militants killed in encounters with indian government forces the indian government forces over the last one year during this one year period have killed almost 180 militants most of whom have been locals and all of their funerals have not taken place so this was one of the first restrictions that came with the corona virus lockdown people who were being killed were being buried away and ostensibly the indian government's excuse was that these funerals tend to be accompanied by mass protests and large gatherings and we can't have any of that that was the logic that was the rationale that the government gave that if these funerals are allowed to take place there are chances of the virus spreading among the communities but at the same time the government was allowing funerals of its own soldiers who were being killed in the same similar gunfights with militants so it kind of raised questions about the intentions of the government if it really wanted to just stop the spread of the virus then it can't couldn't have had two different parameters for the same kind of problem 
You know, and as you note in your piece, it wasn't, you know, just militants who aren't allowed to have funerals, but oftentimes victims, presumably of extrajudicial killings by Indian security forces who were not militants were also banned from having funerals. In fact, their bodies were, you know, hundreds of kilometers away from their homes. Yes, there have been cases like that as well. In fact, one of the first persons to have been killed and buried away in a far-off location was a 14-year-old boy, Hazim Ahmed Bhatt. He was physically challenged and that boy was killed in a gunfight where the security forces reportedly said that he was killed in a gunfight between militants and security forces. And although he was a civilian, his body was not returned to his family was buried away 30 kilometers away, 30, 40 kilometers away from the home. And similarly, a month later, there was this fake encounter that took place in July, a couple of months later, where three civilians were killed and passed off as foreign militants. And because of this new diktat, they were immediately buried at a far off place. And if it wasn't for the social media, the family would have never come to know that these were their kin. Around uh, The encounter happened around July 2019, 18th July, and it was in August the family came across these photos of these people on social media, and that's when they came to Srinagar from Rajori, which is a frontier district with Pakistan. They came here and appealed to the government to return their dead bodies, and after DNA tests, their bodies were exhumed. But a month later, another such case happened where a person was taken into custody. Allegedly, he was an overground worker, a term that Indian government forces used for sympathizers or people who support militancy in Kashmir. He was taken into custody and then the next day, the police announced that he had died while trying to escape. Again, the family does not believe the police's version and and an inquiry has been ordered. But at the same time, again, the police refused to return the dead body to the family. In fact, when I met the family, I was told that they were not even informed where they are going to bury him. And they had to kind of fight the administration to get to know where the location of his burial is going to be so that they could be able to reach there. And it didn't stop even then. Then in December, something similar happened. There was an encounter which the family says these men are not militants, but the police again claim these were militants. Their bodies were again buried at a far-off location. Their families again feel that these were innocent kids who had gone out and then they were killed. But Indian police believes they were militants or at least they were overground workers. Again, a term which police uses for sympathizers or supporters of militants. And again, the, you know, the idea is that separating the bodies, the remains of people killed from their homes is sort of a, a further way to enforce and enact, you know, a clampdown on political activity in the region. Yes, as I said, even the police, even the officials, Indian police officials have acknowledged that not allowing the funerals has kind of stopped people because in the past, the militant funeral would be a place where people would gather and stage protest. So stopping the, that or banning that kind of also bans that political coming together of people where they could come together and protest. There were already bans on other forms of protest. And this was like one place where they could mourn and protest at the same time. But that has also been kind of completely banned now. And even though now coronavirus lockdown has been lifted to a large extent across India. 
these restrictions still are in play. The funerals are still not allowed to take place after a militant is killed. So in March 2020, just as the pandemic was raging across the world, the government imposed a new law allowing Indian citizens to be considered permanent residents of Jammu and Kashmir. Can you explain the significance of that law for people in Jammu and Kashmir? The government actually kind of gave out these notifications where it made certain people eligible for buying and buying land in Kashmir and for government jobs in Kashmir. So the government of India gave a 10-year period, people who have spent 10 years working in a central government post here in India, uh, here in Kashmir, will be eligible and their children will be eligible for jobs and purchasing property here in Kashmir. But the locals fear because there has been a large presence, as I said, more than half a million troopers are stationed in Kashmir, then there is police force, then there are civil administration officials who have been here in Kashmir. So the locals fear that all of them will be eligible for citizenship in Kashmir or will be able to buy land and will be able to take up economic and job opportunities, which the locals will have will find difficult to get because they kind of don't have the same kind of privileges and the same kind of opportunities which the outsiders will have. So obviously this kind of environment has kind of given an impression to the local population that the government is trying to orchestrate a demographic change. There has been this kind of fear in Kashmir for a long time and often Kashmir is compared to Palestine and what has happened in Palestine. So the people kind of relate to that and fear that over the next 10 or 15 years, there is a possibility where Indians will be taking up majority of jobs and taking up land in Kashmir and they will be the ones marginalized. So this law, this change in law is very important for Kashmiris, the local population. In fact, not just Kashmiris, for both people of Jammu, Kashmir and other areas of Jammu and Kashmir. In fact, although the people, the population in Jammu region had earlier kind of welcomed this move, this abrogation of 370, but over the time now, they are also kind of skeptical of the impact it will have on them. So the thing is like Jammu and Kashmir is made up of two different regions, Jammu and Kashmir. While Kashmir is predominantly majority Muslim, Jammu is predominantly Hindu. And it, it supported that move initially where the government abrogated 370. But over this period of one year, there has been the sense, the sense has developed even in Jammu that when people from outside of the state will come and apply for jobs and other economic opportunities in this region, they will be marginalized. So that way, this move has had a pretty detrimental effect on the psyche of the people because it has, again, raised questions about the intentions of the government, about why they are doing it. Because the government, when it made this move, kind of projected it as something which will lead to development in Jammu and Kashmir, will lead to end of resentment among Kashmiris towards Indian state. But on the contrary, this these moves have created a lot more resentment and actually do not kind of fit into the development agenda because the people of Kashmir will not see that development if people from outside the state come and take over jobs and other opportunities. 
So uh, another pandemic area, nefarious administrative move by the Indian government that you document in your piece was a June 2020 media policy in the region that you know essentially suppresses or further suppresses freedom of speech and press in Jammu and Kashmir. What does this law say? The law kind of gives out a lot of pointers for the press to follow. And one of them is kind of, one of the important ones is that the government, it kind of gives the government the authority to decide what is fake news. And rather than just rebutting it, they can now book you for it. So although it was happening even before where police officials would call up journalists, intimidate them, or even book them, we have had cases of journalists being booked under Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, UAPA, which is an anti-terror law. But now with this new press law that has been, media law that has come into the come into play in Jammu and Kashmir, it has institutionalized this kind of harassment of journalists and media organizations. It has also made it very difficult for journalists to operate as, as I mentioned in the piece, the journalists I spoke to talked about how it has made them aware and conscious about how or what they are reporting. It has also made them conscious of not getting or quoting people who are seen by the state as anti-state or anti-national. So in a lot of ways, although this was happening, as you said, that the press was already suppressed in Kashmir, but in a lot of ways, this is kind of this new media law, media policy, as it is called the 2020 media policy. This is kind of institutionalized this harassment of journalists in the valley. And because of that, there is a lot more self-censorship among the journalists now because they fear that whatever they do or if they kind of cross that line which has now been drawn, there are legal ways through which they can be harassed. It is... It's not just like you will be picked up and that's it or you will be questioned. Now the government has laid down these rules that if you don't follow them, you could end up in jail and there are laws to prosecute you for that. Yeah, as you write, you know, you you can be criminally charged for, you know, quote, anti-national activities or, quote, questioning the sovereignty and integrity of, of India. How has that impacted your work? As I said, like it has kind of created like in for myself again, like when we go out to report, we try to because again, over this one year period, there has also been this government officials do not speak to the local press. They do not respond to the questions from the press. So which again leaves people like me who are working in this environment in a very difficult situation because if there is a question and you cannot confirm it from the authorities and they don't want to talk to you. But when you publish that story, they can tomorrow come up and say, this is not factually correct and they can book you. So there is always this fear in the back of, like in my mind, there's this kind of, it has created a kind of self-censorship where you kind of want to be, have to be extra sure about what you're writing. You, You have to kind of do more than what you're needed to, just to be sure that tomorrow when the copy is published, you're not going to be questioned. So in a way, it has also restricted us from reporting on a lot of issues because again, certain kind of reporting is not viewed very well by the state and that kind of puts you on the crosshairs. So in a way, it kind of 
more than like anything else it kind of creates doubt in your own mind about what you can and cannot write because at the end of the day you want to be you do not want to end up in jail and kind of not be able to do what you want to do so this new media policy has kind of created a lot of self censorship among journalists in kashmir so we are speaking in the context of the article you wrote for the Stanley Center's project Red Flags or Resilience which examines how covid has potentially accelerated or exacerbated risks for atrocity crimes in in you know around the world going forward what do you see as the greatest risk for atrocity crimes in Kashmir again see what we have seen over this couple these couple of years is the impunity with which the government has been operating i mentioned earlier there was this fake encounter in 2020 and the government the police actually registered a case against some of the army officials but because there are laws in place which stop them being prosecuted in civilian courts it kind of gives them impunity to do whatever they can so these these what has happened over the last couple of years again has created this environment of impunity this sense of impunity among the security establishment where it seems that anything goes so what i feel that going forward there 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 are chances that there would be more human rights violations which have already been taken taking place but now i fear that because there are there's not enough space for protest or even space for raising opinions for the people such violations will rise there will be a rise in human rights violations and because of that i fear that there will also be a lot of resentment among the younger generations of kashmiris which could lead to mass protests which have happened in the past in 2016 2008 2010 so i fear that going forward because of these restrictive laws and this these changes in the constitution of jammu and kashmir will lead to a lot of resentment and eventually this can spur into a mass protest where again the state will come down very heavily on the civilians and it will again be that very vicious cycle of violence so i fear that if nothing changes in the coming few years if these laws are not done away with or at least kind of relaxed there there are chances of a mass protest among civilians and which again could spur to a lot of casualties which has happened in the past when the state kind of aggressively tight tries to tackle such protests so in my opinion one of the biggest risks going forward is the younger generations of jammu and kashmir getting sucked into that cycle of violence well anand thank you so much for your time thank you thank you mark All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Adnan Bhatt for speaking with me from Kashmir. Thank you to the Stanley Center for partnering with the podcast around this Red Flags or Resilience series. And again, please visit resilience.stanleycenter.org to view other articles in the Red Flags or Resilience series. Thank you. I will see you next time. Bye.